Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Intelligence Matters ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Have you ever covered a carpet stain with a rug? Ignored a leaky faucet? Pretended your half-painted living room is supposed to look like that? Well, you're not alone. We've all got unfinished home projects. But there's an easier way. When you download Thumbtack, it's easier to care for your home from top to bottom. Pull out your phone, and in just a few steps, you can search, chat, and book highly rated pros right in your neighborhood. Plus, you'll know what to tackle next, because Thumbtack is the app that shows you what to do, who to hire, and when. So say goodbye to all those unfinished home projects, and say hello to caring for your home the easier way. Download Thumbtack and start a project today. This is Intelligence Matters, with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. On the small globe in which we are trying to live and survive, that particularly as China became, came to have a major nuclear arsenal, which it has had now for a decade, it would be impossible to have a nuclear war without the U.S. being destroyed because we live in a so-called mad world, as Cold War strategists reminded us, in which even if I do my best to destroy you, I can't prevent your retaliating in a way that destroys me. Graham Allison is a professor of government at Harvard University. Graham is the founding dean of the John F. Kennedy School of Government And until 2017, he served as director of the school's Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs. Graham's interests include nuclear weapons, Russia, China, and national security decision-making. Graham joins us today to take a special look at the views on China of Singapore's founding father, Lee Kuan Yew. We'll be right back with that discussion after a word from our sponsor. I'm Michael Morell, and this is Intelligence Matters. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you? And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. 
Graham, welcome back to Intelligence Matters. It is always nice to talk with you. There is literally no one who I learn more from than from you when we talk. So great to have you on the show and welcome. An honor to be back with you and I love the show. Thank you. So Graham, you know that the idea for this episode came from a dinner that we had in Cambridge not too long ago when you and I went deep on China. I think they actually had to kick us out of the restaurant finally. <laughs> um, but but you'll remember that that idea was to go back to a set of interviews that you did with Lee Kuan Yew, I think about a decade ago now, and to see how his views on China have held up over time, along with you know your assessment of why they have held up or why they haven't held up. And by the way, that book that you did based on the interviews was titled Lee Kuan Yew, The Grand Master's Insights on China, the United States, and the World. And I think it's fair that our listeners might be asking, you know, why do we care about Lee Kuan Yew's views from 10 years ago and whether they were right or wrong? So I think that's the place I want to start the conversation. So Graham, who was Lee Kuan Yew? And why did you care about what his views were at the time you did the interviews? Let's start there. Well, again, thank you. So three or four points. First, Lee Kuan Yew was, by everybody's assessment, the world's best China watcher. So as you, Michael, know very well from your days at the, at the uh, CAA, no one had a more a deeper understanding of Xi Jinping and China than Lee Kuan Yew. Secondly, this is a view that was held by virtually every serious strategic, serious student of strategy in the world. In fact, for the little book that we did that you mentioned, Michael, we had Henry Kissinger do the forward. Right. And he says this was the most insightful strategist whom he ever met. Lee Kuan Yew was someone whom every president of the U.S. during his term would go to Singapore to go see, to listen to, to talk to, and every Chinese leader would go see and talk to. So who was this guy? He was the founder and for 30 years prime minister and builder of Singapore, which when he and his two colleagues started out when Singapore was basically kicked out of Malaysia, was a poor port city known for its corruption and for it was poorer than the Philippines. Right, and right. before he was done, it had become one of the wonders of the modern world uh, with a per capita income today that's higher than that in the U.S. So Lee Kuan Yew was a true nation builder. He was a true visionary. He was a the dream uh, intelligence uh, source for those of us trying to understand something as complex as uh, China. You know, I um, I met him a couple times during my during my career at the agency, and I think it's fair to say that he was the best analyst on the planet on pretty much everything, including China. He just had so much insight to share on many many topics, especially on China and. Part of the reason why, I think maybe you and I talked earlier before, so 
just before I published the Destined for War book in 2017, our friend and colleague David Petraeus had recently become director at CIA. David's somebody I have a long friendship with over many, many decades. So I went to see him out at the agency. It's a couple of weeks, maybe within a, within a month of his taking office. I said, David, how are you finding it here? Oh, he said, it's wonderful. I can't really imagine. I mean, David's always positive about everything. I said, yeah. well, what are you liking? He said, my goodness, these people are amazing. He said, you know, in the military, when we plan an operation to do something in Africa or here or there, it takes us months. We have to have a backup. We have to track this. We have to train. He said, this morning, some guys came in, and they were going off to a foreign country, and they have a mission to com- accomplish. And I asked them, what about their plan? They said, they're <laughs> going to make it up on the plane, getting there. <laughs> so exactly he, was, right. he, was, he was super impressed. So I said to him, well, David, have they uh, let you in on any of the, you know, in the jewel box with the secrets? And as you could imagine, his eyes get bigger. He said, yes, I've learned a number of secrets, but if I told you, I'd have to kill you. So I said, well, have they told you much about the deep sleepers? He said, well, he's looking puzzled. I said, these are people whom we established a relationship with decades ago. We never call on them, except occasionally we ask them for some insights about the world they're living in. And I pulled out from my briefcase this 25 pages of what were the interviews with Lee Kuan Yew. And I looked at him, I said, for example, this one, he said, the question, is Xi Jinping and his colleagues, are they serious about displacing the U.S. as the predominant power in the foreseeable future? That's one question. Second question is, are they likely to succeed? Third, what is Xi's plan for doing this? I got about three or four. He was almost jumping across the table to try to get, get at this thing. And I said, let me tell you, this is not a person who was working for American intelligence. This is an intelligent person who was trying to cause, kind of make Singapore succeed. And because of that, had a, a deep need to know who engaged with people like Xi for many, many hours in which they would actually come call on him to talk to him. So he learned from that. And he was also a great strategic analyst. So he was like a a dream team for your business. Absolutely. So Graham, what I want to do is I want to throw out some of the points that Lee Kuan Yew made about China and just get you to respond to them. And you've already mentioned one of them. So number one, Lee Kuan Yew said, Chinese leaders are serious about displacing the United States as the number one power in Asia and eventually in the world. Is that still true? Absolutely. I think the more you look at it and the more you listen to Xi Jinping and the more you observe China's behavior and the more you actually study the work plan that he outlined at the 20th Party Congress, at this stage, actually, when he first said that, Chinese would say, no, 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 and most Americans would say, no, that's not real. But Chinese, I mean, if you ask Xi Jinping now, his grand narrative is China is inexorably rising, the U.S. is irreversibly declining, and by mid-century, 2049, when they celebrate their 100th anniversary of the Communist Party dynasty in China, he believes China will be the center of the universe. And so that brings us to number two, right? And that, what does being number one mean? And here's what Lee Kuan Yew said in your interview. Being number one means to the Chinese a relationship with other countries where China is dominant 
and is capable of influencing the policies of those countries in a way that furthers Chinese interests, right? Kind of a modern version of what was once known as the Middle Kingdom. Is that still true? Yes, indeed. Again, I think it's even prescient as one watches their behavior and their strategy for doing that, which he also outlined, which is in the first instance to become the dominant trading partner and secondly, the dominant supplier of the most important items in the global supply chain. So if you ask the question, who is the number one overwhelming trading partner of every Asian nation? Singapore, Japan, Australia, Philippines, China, South Korea, for all of them, twice, twice as much trade as with the U.S. Who's the dominant supplier of the most important items in the, in the vital supply chains, China. So that provides the ground for demanding a degree of deference or for China's exercising a degree of influence when required. Lee Kuan Yew had another a comment about this. He said, you know, people say, well, how will China behave when it becomes number one? He said, excuse me, <laughs> we already live next to China, which is number one. And they say always to us, we're not a hegemon, we don't throw our weight around. But when we do something they don't like, they say, know your place. Yeah. So before we go to the next, the next Lee Kuan Yew insight I want to share, I want to ask you, how is China's desire to influence other countries different from America's desire to influence other countries? Great question. We should ask Lee Kuan Yew. That's it. <laughs> Where's Lee Kuan Yew now that we Where's need? Where's Lee Kuan Yew? Is it fundamentally uh, different or is it fundamentally the same? I think there's there are many similarities. I think, I'm not sure what Lee Kuan Yew would say, but I, I'm pretty sure what Chinese would say. So they would say, well, you folks are fairly crude in the way that you establish your colossal position. Namely, you lead with the military and with military bases. And that's why you have, you know, substantial military bases in a hundred places around the world. That's not what we do. We, in the Chinese tradition, imagine or insist on a relationship between the center, the metropole, and the tributaries, and they have to pay respect and a degree of deference, but we're more subtle about the way in which we exercise our power. Now, as one watched recently the Wolf Warriors and their extreme statements, which have largely uh, led to backlash in many countries, and if you look at the Chinese rather crude coercion of countries or attempt to coerce countries like Australia, which has mainly succeeded in getting their, their backup because Australians are pretty, pretty honorary folks, their storyline may be better than their performance. Right, right. You know, when you asked him, what is China's strategy to become number one? Lee Kuan Yew said, China's strategy is to build a strong and prosperous future but while doing so to avoid any action that will sour relations with the U.S. So now we get to a really interesting place here. Lee Kuan Yew said, and I want to quote, the mistake that Germany and Japan made was, that their effort to ch was their effort to 
challenge the existing order. The Chinese are not stupid. They have avoided this mistake, with the implication being that they would continue to avoid that mistake. Obviously, things have turned out a little bit differently. That's a, a, a good one to remember. I think that that was certainly his advice to Xi Jinping and to other Chinese leaders. And actually, I had I talked to him about that, and he said that's that was his advice, but that he had a feeling that they weren't necessarily they didn't find it as as comfortable or compatible as as they thought. Mm. I think there's no question that under Xi, the hide and bide uh, uh, banner, which served China rather well for a long time. And I must say, from our perspective, you know, not too many people stop to ask, well, hide what and until when and to bide why and then what. So right. nonetheless, I think that uh, Xi Jinping by 2016 was discarding that as he asserted a much more affirmative agenda in which he's called on China to stand strong and tall. Partly this is to build a nationalist support for the regime since his first ambition that he understood very well and that Lee Kuan Yew understood well that most Western observers, I think, miss is to be able to sustain his position as leader against what are clearly many opponents who would like to replace him. So if we watch what's happened in the in the past five years, I think the most remarkable performance of a political leader in the world has been that of Xi Jinping, who inherited what was a determined collective leadership in which people were terrified of the prospect of one-man rule that would be a return to Mao and madness of the Cultural Revolution. But lo and behold, as we saw in the coronation, Xi Jinping is now the unchallenged, unitary autocrat or emperor uh, ruling China. Here's another one, Graham, which I think is really important, is Lee Kuan Yew said Xi Jinping, you asked him about Xi Jinping, Xi Jinping is a very impressive individual, and he has iron in his soul. We've seen that. So I think we're seeing that right now. We're, we're seeing it, absolutely. And uh, he was the first person to call out Xi Jinping when Xi Jinping became vice president in 2008. And he said, watch this man, as you say. He has, he has iron in his soul. I think he actually found him to be, for himself, a bit of a soul mate. So a little story to with respect to that. So Lee Kuan Yew thought that unlike most Western leaders, he had grown up in the very, very uh, hard school of very, very hard knocks. So basically to survive and to continue ruling Singapore, he even said, you know, I had to do many things that in retrospect I don't feel proud of. And those probably included, they might have included the deaths of some people, who knows, of political opponents. For Xi Jinping, he was a princeling. Uh, his father was a colleague of Mao's. He was growing up in Beijing, you know, to live a pretty cushy life. And all of a sudden, Mao comes along 
and has his cultural revolution, humiliates his father in public over and over, and sends the two kids, his sister and himself, to the countryside to shovel dung, as he tells the story himself. And his sister found it so dispiriting that she committed suicide. And he thought of committing suicide, but determined, as he said, that he would become redder than red. So this is a tough guy, and I think Lee Kuan Yew would admire as a similarly tough guy leader. So here in a world in which Great Britain, a a great story of democracy, has had four prime ministers in less than two months, and here's Xi Jinping in, in control of the you know, with the instruments of power. So if the first requirement of a, of a leader of a nation is to maintain his position so that he has the power to pursue his ambitions, even though I don't like it and I don't like his style in doing it, I have to stand back and I think Lee Kuan Yew would stand back and say, well, he's succeeding. Yeah, in an immense way, right? We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, then we'll be right back with more of our discussion with Graham Allison. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. So here's perhaps to me the the most interesting thing that Lee Kuan Yew said to you 10 years ago. The United States should not treat China as an enemy. And I want to quote here again, otherwise it, meaning China, will develop a strategy to demolish, his word, demolish the U.S. in the Asia Pacific. And two more quotes from Lee Kuan Yew here. If the U.S. attempts to humiliate China, keep it down, it will assure itself an enemy. And then one more, the fundamental choice that the United States has to make is to engage or isolate China. You cannot have it both ways. You cannot say you will engage China on some issues and isolate her on others. You cannot mix your signals. What's your reaction to that today? You, uh, uh, you I haven't, I hadn't gone back to read that, uh, that uh, before. I think I remember that this was certainly one of his lines. But since you made the, offered the additional quotations, it becomes even more interest. Interesting. So I think he would say that we failed to take his advice, that we have yielded to basically all the normal pressures that occur in what I've described elsewhere in the that Destined for War book as a Thucydidean rivalry, that we've let the let the fear 
of the rise of China uh, so color our appreciation of the bigger geopolitical picture that we may be falling into just the pattern of behavior that he warned us against. And I'm afraid likely with the consequences that he warned us against. So he had the idea, which I, I'm confident is exactly right, that in this, on the small globe in which we are trying to live and survive, that particularly as China became a, came to have a, a major nuclear arsenal, which it has had now for a decade, it would be impossible to have a nuclear war without the U.S. being destroyed because we live in a so-called mad world, as Cold War strategists reminded us, in which even if I do my best to destroy you, I can't prevent your retaliating in a way that destroys me. So I got to find some way to live with you, however uncomfortably. He also, interestingly, particularly for somebody that you know grew up all together in the 20th century, he picked up on the climate risks early on and talked very presciently about how could it be that Chinese and American leaders don't understand that either of them can make a biosphere none of us can live in, so they got to find some way to cooperate in that space. His vision was that somehow we would find a way, he called it, to share the Pacific in the 21st century and very uncomfortably, but nonetheless still surviving. And I think that we probably should be reading his, his thoughts again and asking, are we, are we stumbling down the road that he warned us would not lead to where we want to get? So, Graham, I want to kind of bring us to today and ask you a couple of really difficult questions, and we can actually talk about these. So we just talked, right, that if China did the right things and the U.S. did the right things, I think Lee Kuan Yew imagined a world where the United States and a rising China could coexist. You just said it. You know, the question is, was, was he wrong then? And if he was right then, has the last 10 years eliminated that outcome from the set of possible outcomes? Is it no longer possible that we can coexist? Or is it, do we still have time? What's your view on that? Well, you and I talked a little bit about this at dinner, and I'm, yeah, you, yeah. you made a number of points that I'm still trying to digest and reflect on. I think that you're certainly right that all of the natural juices in American politics are driving towards seeing China uh, not just as a competitor, but increasingly an adversary, and actually by that people really mean enemy. Uh, that's exactly what Lee Kuan Yew said would lead you to a bad outcome. But secondly, I don't believe that, I think the realities that make coexistence an imperative, since the alternative is destruction, co-destruction, and since the first and most vital national interest for both the U.S. and China is to preserve itself as a free, independent nation. So as Reagan told us, you know, at the end of a nuclear war, there will be no winners, because no matter how successfully 
you've destroyed your adversary. If your own country has been destroyed in the process, nobody can call that victory. So can we still find a way to manage a process in which there's a fierce competition on the one hand, which inevitably there will be, because we really do believe we are number one and should be number one, and that the, the global order that we've been, and especially the Asian order, of which we've been the principal architect and guardian since World War II, has been extraordinarily successful. I mean, basically, never before in history have there been such periods. I mean, this is the other than one other long piece, the longest period without great power war. So this is unnatural, but again, remarkable and to be, be celebrated. There's also been stability that's allowed the fastest increase in human well-being that we've seen in history. So Americans, I think, are rightfully proud of the international order we played the lead role in in constructing and and maintaining and don't want to give that up. And I think I understand that. On the other hand, from the Chinese perspective, the statement that says, wait a minute, we were not even there when you did all this. We weren't consulted. Our interests weren't taken into account. So we think that there need now to be some very substantial adjustments. Again, that's very normal and natural. Both the, the rising power and the ruling power are behaving precisely the way Thucydides said rising and ruling powers do. Now, can the parties, because we live in a mad world, remember that my survival requires finding a way, however uncomfortable, to constrain my competition and even cooperate with you, and can you do the same? Well, in the Cold War, which was analogous, not the same, but analogous, after some very close calls, including, as we're remembering this week, the Cuban Missile Crisis, where Kennedy thought there was about a one in three chance this was going to end in a nuclear war. But having had these experiences, uh, over time, both the U.S. and the Soviet Union developed a level of caution and constraint and even compromise that allowed us to have a peaceful or to coexist while we were competing. And so could we do the similar, something similar in the case of U.S. and China? I believe this is not, not beyond human imagination, not beyond statescraft, if it were great statecraft. But we should remember the, the success of the Cold War strategists was not normal. This was extraordinary what was created as the Cold War strategy and then refined over the course of your career and, you know, my career. I would say, can we do this again? Well, if we did it once, why not? But uh, are we doing it currently? I, I don't think so. We're going to take another quick break. We'll be right back with more Intelligence Matters. Stay with us. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 
Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. I want to ask about Taiwan, which is obviously in the news. And Graham, as you know, there has been several times in the history of PRC, U.S. relations, where there have been significant tensions over Taiwan, you know, dating back to the communist revolution and the founding of the People's Republic. And tensions are on the rise again today, you know, I'd say significantly so. And what I want to ask you is, why are they on the rise now? You know, how do you think about how we got to where we are today? You know, you know it seems to me that the U.S. has actually taken steps here that have added to these tensions I'm wondering whether those steps were strategically smart or not. How do you think about sort of where we are on Taiwan and how we got here? Great issue, very complicated, as you know better than than I do, since you've spent much of your career wrestling with it. But uh, four or five points. First, if we were to wake up a year or five years from now and we learned that there had been a war, a real war, big war, between the U.S. and China— the most likely way that happened was over Taiwan. So I believe Taiwan is extremely, extremely dangerous as a potential trigger to a war that nobody wants. Secondly, for people who propose especially provocative actions, and I would give three examples, uh, Nancy Pelosi's, I think, very untimely and unreasonable visit to Taiwan this summer, which both raised the tension but also provided an occasion for the Chinese response that's improved their situation considerably. And more, even more so, this bill that uh, Senators Medendez and Graham of the Taiwan Relations Act have been trying to get through the Senate, which would propose, or which in its original version, proposed recognizing Taiwan as a non-NATO ally— I've said to uh, notes to both of them saying, if your objective is to declare, is to have a war with China, you should say so. So if anybody wants to have a war with China, speak up and see who will agree with them. And I think the answer is nobody. So everybody knows that a war between U.S. and China could be catastrophic for the U.S., which is what we care about most. But if you wanted to... uh, raise the risk of that to the highest level, recognizing Taiwan as an independent state has absolutely across the brightest, brightest red line China has. No Chinese leader, not Xi, not anybody else, could survive if Taiwan became an independent country. So that's just a political fact in their system, and they're prepared to fight about it if it comes to that. So I would say provoking them makes no sense. Third, Mostly, we've forgotten what is incredible success the policy of so-called strategic ambiguity that was developed by 
Nixon and Kissinger on the one hand and Mao and Cho and Lai on the other in the Shanghai communique and its aftermath. How, what an incredible success this has been. This is one of the great, great successes in American post-war policy. The past five decades have seen greater increases in the well-being of people on both sides of the strait than any five decades in China's thousands of years of history. So we should start, you know, and Taiwan is now a vibrant, uh, self-governing uh, market economy and democracy with some of the great companies in the world. The world's leading semiconductor company, TSMC, is a Taiwan company, but there are other tech companies. So this is a great success story. So why then are we stumbling towards uh, what likely to be a, a conflict and I think is extremely dangerous? Partly it's the demons uh, uh, or furies in American politics where uh, the imperative in domestic politics is never let anybody get to your right on a serious issue of national security. So both the Republicans and Democrats are scrambling to try to show they can be tougher than the other on China. Partly it's because we haven't found a concept or a conceptualization of an ability to both compete and cooperate with China at the same time, not because we would like to, but because that's necessitated by the objective conditions we face, namely nuclear-mad and climate-mad, uh, and partly because we have been sort of coasting, I think, and letting events take their, take their course as opposed to thinking strategically. Really, uh, this will require and does require a big burst of strategic imagination. But that's a long answer, but I think this is, a, this is an issue that we'll see arise over and over and very dangerously possibly in the 24 presidential campaign where it's quite possible the Republican platform will call for recognition of an independent Taiwan. And if it does so, I think they should simply add to it and therefore likely war with China. I couldn't agree with you more, Graham. So I just want to take the next step in your previous answer, Graham. If you were the national security advisor and you were about to run a policy process on our strategic approach to China, what are the key questions that you would ask your team? Oh, great question. Uh, you and I should wrestle with this one. Okay, number one, start with the structural, the uncomfortable, sometimes ugly structural realities. Reality one, we live in a mad world in which China has a arsenal of nuclear weapons that if used against us will erase the U.S. from the map. So I cannot fight a war. Secondly, and they're growing that arsenal. And a growing arsenal. A, a rapidly growing arsenal. But in any case, if I end up with a war, with a nuclear war with China, I've lost the U.S. Okay, that's fatal for all of my ambitions. Secondly, I live in a contained biosphere with China, in which China is now the biggest greenhouse gas emitter, emitter, twice as much as the U.S., but in which either the U.S. or China on our current trajectory could make a biosphere none of us could live in in some decades ahead. So we have to find some way to cooperate in that space. Thirdly, 
actually we've become economically so entangled and China is so much an economic backbone of the world today that the idea of building some new economic iron curtain and excluding China, there there can be some selective decoupling, but China is not going to be decoupled from the global economy. It's a backbone of the global economy and even of our economy. So start with the reality. Secondly, you and I uh, and Mike and, and Sandy Winifo wrote an article about this. Ask what is the hierarchy of American vital national interests. So yes. American vital national interests start with the survival of the U.S. as a free nation with our institutions and values. So does that require a war with China? No. A war with China would defeat that objective. So we got to find a way to coexist, to survive with China. Then, I, Next, I then go to... What lessons can I extract and adapt from the Cold War that may be helpful in this regard? So as you remember, American leaders, and Reagan probably most vividly, for whom I worked with enthusiasm, Reagan said, the Soviet Union is the evil empire. I believe that was right. Reagan was serious about hoping ultimately to bury the Soviet Union. We did, and communism, we did. But he also said a nuclear war cannot be won and must therefore never be fought. So he was prepared to engage in communication all the time and at every possible level, to engage in negotiations, sometimes compromising in which we agreed uh, not to deploy intermediate nuclear forces in order to, as the price for getting the Soviet Union to eliminate its intermediate nuclear forces, or we agreed not to deploy any ballistic missile systems as the price for getting them not to. So where it was in our interest, we were prepared to compromise as necessary. He didn't find it necessary to go, quote, liberate Eastern Europe with, you know, by, by conflict, because he recognized that if we had a conventional war with the Soviet Union in Hungary or Czechoslovakia or Poland or elsewhere, that could escalate to a nuclear war. So we competed vigorously on the one hand, but we found a way to constrain and even occasionally certainly coordinate, even cooperate on the other. And that then led for a long-term peaceful competition. It's a vicious competition, ferocious competition often, uh, sometimes with a with a lot of activity in the gray zone, which you and your intelligence community would tell us about, for example, in Afghanistan. But we didn't send troops to fight Soviet troops. We didn't use nuclear weapons against Soviet troops because we understood nuclear war could not be won. That didn't mean we couldn't be very imaginative. We couldn't be very competitive. We couldn't help undermine their system, and we couldn't ultimately emerge successfully. So I'd say that if if the next 30, 40, 50 years were a ruthless competition between U.S. and China, us trying to show that we can make a democracy work, Xi and his company trying to show they can make an autocracy, a party-led autocracy, work better, and we see how it works out. And I'm uh, deeply enough committed to the American uh, creed to believe that I think in a fair, in a fair long-term competition, we'll not only hold our own, but we'll do better than that. Graham, um, I couldn't agree with you more. I could talk to you all day about this. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll continue the conversation offline. Thank you. Thank you. 
That was Graham Allison. I'm Micah Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. Intelligence Matters is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, Paulina Smolinski, and Reggie Bazile. For more from this week's show, visit cbsnews.com. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News. Get one of the most successful broadcasts in television history on your schedule with the 60 Minutes podcast. Hard-hitting investigative reports, news, and culture maker interviews, and in-depth profiles are waiting for you in every episode. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts.